0: Our sermon today will be taken from Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 till 22. This is the word of God. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of my redemption of yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it f- for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Melon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by, his young woman, by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, Now these are the generations of Pires. Pires fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Thus says the Lord.
1: Amen, thank you so much Emily. Friends, we're at the end of the book of Ruth. We've been in this book for the past, uh, four weeks and here it is, the climactic chapter of the book of Ruth. Again, this book is meant to be read all in one sitting. It's a slender three pages, but as we've seen so far, it's three pages packed with theological insight, practical wisdom, and um, a lot of romance and a lot of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that make your heart warm, as one might say. But uh, as we've seen before in the last three weeks as we've covered the book of Ruth, a major theme of this book It's an inclusion of a foreigner into Israel, God's redemptive purposes through this one small family in the midst of the time of Judges, where in the book of Judges, it was zooming out on kings and significant, not not kings yet, but judges, leaders of Israel, significant people, public figures that led Israel out. But at the end of the book of Judges, there seemed to be no hope because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Israel, therefore, was anticipating a leader They would bring about peace through the land so that there would be no more chaos in the land. That people would, once again, be brought into obedience by God. And after the turmoil of the book of Judges, which is just a spiraling down of depravity, in the book of Ruth, we're zooming in into this particular family, a new family that God's bringing about, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And through this small little family, through their acts of selflessness, faithfulness, um, lunches and dates and farming, God would bring about David, the king of Israel, the one who would bring about greater peace in the land, our prosperity. And of course, after David, long after David, Jesus himself, we're reading about this humble story of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And as Tazar preached for the past three weeks, we saw the theme of selflessness. In chapter one, we saw selflessness in the time of need. We saw that Naomi had lost her husband, or two sons-in-laws, left with two daughters-in-laws, left to themselves. And in that time period, right? widows are known to be the least, the most needy of the land because they have nowhere else to go. They don't have a lineage to go to. They don't have someone to take care of their land. They're financially in need. They were desperate for help. But yet they were selfless with one another. We saw in chapter 2 that they were selfless in a time of abundance, When Ruth was starting to get to know this land of Boaz, the relative of Elimelech, right? The Elimelech was again the husband of Naomi who passed away. They were selfless in a time of fruitfulness, of of abundance, when they had enough grain to eat. Chapter three, we saw that there was selflessness in a time of romance, when Ruth and Boaz pursued one another, and there was a proposal, a wedding proposal by Ruth to Boaz there. Chapter four, we continue on in the selflessness of romance. Chapter three, we ended with a proposal. Chapter four is a climactic wedding. And in this wedding, friends, we're gonna see a lot of what God is doing. And in this wedding, I hope we'll see the wedding between us, the bride, and Jesus Christ, the true bridegroom. And friends, um, in this text, we're gonna see three main points. There's a lot to cover here, and I'm not gonna be able to cover everything. There's three points in this text that we wanna cover today. First, we're gonna talk about the total selflessness of Boaz. How Boaz's uh, procedures and how he acted to to have this marriage was complete selflessness. Second, the total renewal of redemption or the totality of redemption as a renewal. Total renewal of redemption. And then third, how to be selfless in romance, the meaning of marriage. (laughs) I hope God will be with us as we go through this text today. Let us pray. Father, what an amazing little book that you've put into your word. In this book of Ruth, we've seen, Lord God, how you do not abandon the little ones. You do not abandon those who are smallest, those of us, Lord God, who are most in need. But Father, you continue to pursue, you continue to be faithful to your redemptive purposes. You continue to redeem your people, Lord God, even in the midst of desperate situations. You have not abandoned us. And Lord God, as we come before your text, we are reminded of our need for you. We're reminded of our need for you to be selfless, for you to take on the form of a servant, Jesus Christ, who ministers to us even today. Help us, Lord God, understand this passage. Help us, Lord God, understand the totality of your redemption for us. And help us, Father, understand, Lord God, who we are before you now, cleansed as your bride. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, the first point we're going to cover today, the total selflessness of Boaz and what he does here in this wedding. Look at chapter four. Boaz, after having been proposed by Ruth, we might expect Boaz to do uh, one of very few things, or we might expect that Boaz would be absolutely excited. He's going to say, I'm going to buy everything immediately. He might say, Ruth, I cannot wait to marry you. This is exactly what God wants for us. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all out. Instead, Boaz understands the Israelite law. Boaz understands that he's bounded to this law and he has to proceed legally. He has to proceed in full integrity. And in his total selflessness, he doesn't want Ruth or Naomi's land to himself immediately, as if it was his right to begin with, because the text says that there is a redeemer or someone closer to Elimelech to redeem the land first. In other words, before Boaz got all excited to marry Ruth, He understood that legally speaking, he needs to seek out a relative closer to Elimelech because in those days in the Israelite law, if your husband passes away and you're a widow, right, um, the one closest to your husband as a relative should take you as their wife. That's what it is by law. And, And Boaz understands that there is someone, a closer relative, we don't know if it's Elimelech's direct brother, we don't know if it's faraway cousin, who knows, but we know that Elimelech had a closer relative to him. Than Boaz, and Boaz understood that first of all, he needed to proceed into this marriage with full integrity. He will not compromise, even legally speaking. He ha- In other words, he has to be patient and make sure that he goes about and looks for this, this closer relative so that he might be redeeming um, Ruth and Naomi first. Look at what happens there. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz was eagerly seeking him out, making sure that he's proceeding with with this legally. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, witnesses, and said, sit down here. And so they sat down, and they said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech, in their one family. So verse 4 is key. I thought I would tell of you it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, and only then, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So even though Boaz was perhaps at this point already intimate with Ruth, even though at this point already knowing of Naomi, even at this point knowing that he wants this land, he first of all says he needs to proceed with it legally and if it means that this Redeemer is better for you, if this means that this person is closer of a relative for you, I have to be ready to give up this land, to give up this marriage in full integrity. This redeemer is closer to Elimelech and only then, if he doesn't redeem it, he says, well, I come after you, then I would redeem it. And here, we see the first glimpse of his selflessness. He says, if this is better for Naomi, better for Ruth, I am ready to give them up. Just to follow the law and just for their well-being. And notice the redeemer says here, I will redeem it. But he's about to back out he's about to back out. And him backing out and Boaz stepping in, we see even more a glimpse of the selflessness of Boaz. Why does this redeemer, this closer relative, back out? Because in verse four, all Boaz mentioned was the land. In verse four, all Boaz mentioned was what? Naomi has a land, she's a widow of our relative Elimelech. Buy this land, redeem it, be fruitful go and multiply this land, make sure that it, 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 it bears fruit, make sure that the farming is, is well again, make sure that they're producing grain again, buy this land. And at this point, if it's all just about the land, sure, the Redeemer will buy it. Why does the Redeemer suddenly stop in later verse seven, I mean six? Why does he change his mind from buying this land? Because in verse five, Boaz reveals to them more information. He's not gonna bait them and switch it, right? He's gonna tell them full out, full disclosure here to the Redeemer. What does he say? He says, Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. I can't do this. What causes this Redeemer to back out? What causes him to suddenly change his mind from redeeming this land? Well, Boaz says, if you do redeem this land, you're going to have to take Ruth as your wife, a widow. Not merely a widow, as emphasized again and again, a Moabite, a foreigner. And Tezar has mentioned and emphasized over the past few weeks that Ruth was a foreigner, right? Therefore, not, um, not enjoying the privileges and promises of being a covenant person of Israel. But not only this, she's not merely a foreigner, friends, and this hasn't been emphasized enough. She's not only a foreigner. The reason why this Redeemer is backing out is also because she's a Moabite, a Moabite. And if you know your Old Testament, and they would have known their Old Testament, both would have known their Old Testament, what are Moabites known for? And this is what causes the word to change his mind. What are Moabites known for? Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis 19, verse 30 to 38. Genesis 19, 30 to 38. This is a story of how the Moabites came about. And they're infamous for this. Remember in Genesis 19, right, this is after Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah were just destroyed by God because of their immorality, but God rescues Lot and his family, Abraham's nephew and their family, but Lot's wife gets killed uh, on the way out, and Lot and his daughters went out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they did this, and I'm just going to read it for us, this is the most R-rated thing in the Bible you might ever read. So Lot went out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters out of Sodom and Gomorrah. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she rose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine again that night, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Then both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, the firstborn son, and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. He thought Game of Thrones was explicit. (laughs) Um, This is bad. This is beyond bad. Um, Think about the deepest depths of depravity. You don't really go deeper than this. This is very, very bad. And um, I don't have to go through those details, right? The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And here's what is significant. He is the father of the Moab to this day. Does that mean he's literally alive to this day? No. It means that the Moabites are known for their sins of their generations upon generations. The Moabites are known by the sins of their father. In other words, the sins that characterize this origination of the Moabites are the sins that characterize them even today. So that when the Israelites hear of the Moabites, they think immediately what? These events. These are the kind of things that the Moabites are known for immorality beyond measure so think about this Redeemer this Redeemer I know Elimelech good friend good relative I heard about this Naomi person I know about their land doesn't sound too bad I'm gonna redeem it then Boaz says full disclosure full disclosure my friend who is a Moabite who is Moabite God knows what she was up to before the wedding, before the marriage, and not only what? Not only is she a Moabite, she's a widow. She's a widow, she's been with someone else. Maybe for years, we don't know. That person is dead, we don't know how exactly their relationship went. Full disclosure, she's a Moabite, she's a widow. And also not only that, there's problems of race here, right? Maybe racism could become could, could, could an issue. I can't marry a foreigner, that's culturally unacceptable. We are God's chosen people. How can I now mix my inheritance with the blood of a foreign person? Not only a foreign person, a Moabite of all of them. Not only that, she's a widow. Financially incapable, financially absolutely dependent, socially compromising my status and my inheritance. And that's why he says, right, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I Impair, lest I compromise my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I can't do this. I can't do it. It's too, ex- it's, it's too great a price to pay. And notice at this point, the text doesn't condemn this redeemer. Notice at the point... That the redeemer said, "No, you take my rights, and they're, they're going to do the procedure where Boaz takes the next line of kin and, and will marry Ruth and will take up this land." Notice the text doesn't condemn this redeemer. What does this remind you of? Orpah in chapter one, right? When Ruth's husband had died and the sons-in-law both had died, Ruth said, "I mean," so Naomi says to Ruth, the daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah, "Leave now, go back to your countries. You go." to Moab, uh, Oprah, Orpah, you go back to where you came from, it makes sense, you can find another husband there, leave me alone. Ruth was, I mean Naomi was being selfless and Orpah left, but Ruth clung on. The text says that Orpah did what was commonsensical. Right, Naomi can provide for them, the husband's dead, especially in those times the husband is the one that provides, right? Orpa's husband is dead, so Orpah does what is commonsensical does what, is, what makes sense, goes back to her country, but Ruth clung on. And in the same sense, this Redeemer, worldly speaking especially, and God doesn't condemn this, it makes sense. I can't do it. I can't do this with a Moabite. I can't do this with a foreigner. I can't compromise my race. I can't compromise my social status, my reputation. I can't compromise my money. I can't take care of this person. This is way too far for me, too defiling for me. And here we see further, friends, the absolute selflessness of Boaz. He says, if you can't do it, I will. Then this doesn't faze me. So what if she's a Moabite? So what if this is an expensive land? So what if she's a widow? Look at what happens. They drew off the sandal, right, and this is a, ceremony in Israel. If if you want to take ownership of something, right, it means you step on the land with your sandal, which means you own this land. This is why, um, just as a quick aside, when Moses was approaching the burning bush where God met him in Exodus chapter 3, Moses took off his sandals. Why? Because that land belonged to God. God's sandals are on those lands. And so Moses took off his sandals, acknowledging that he was now in holy land, a long a land not belonging to himself but belonging to God. And in the same way, this Redeemer drew off his sandals and gave it to Boaz. And Boaz also did this, and, and, and they did the ceremony to signify that Boaz now has the right to marry Ruth and to take up the land of Naomi. And look at what Boaz says in verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, not only Elimelech. All that belonged to Chilion and to Mahlon. Chilion was the husband of Orpah. Mahlon was the husband, the first husband of Ruth. He did more than was expected. He didn't just buy the land that belonged to Naomi. He bought everything. Everything that belonged to Orpah's husband and Orpah's long had gone. And everything that belonged to the first husband of Ruth. You know, I don't know about you, but you know, if you're uh, in a relationship with someone, or if your husband or your wife had a relationship with other people, and then you belong, and you came to their room, and uh, maybe you saw a gift there. Uh, let's say it's a puppy. Nobody doesn't like a puppy, right? Everybody likes puppies. Let's say it's a puppy, and you ask your spouse, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, and you say, who gave you this puppy? And they said, my ex. <laughs> you're going to think, all right, we're going to get rid of this puppy, <laughs> All right, right, I'm, I'm reminded of this, right? What is Boaz saying here? Whatever Malon gave Ruth, whatever your ex had given you, Ruth, whatever puppies, sheep, cattle, grain, farms, house, I will take care of him. Absolute selflessness. His ego wasn't hurt. He didn't think, Ruth, does this remind you of him? Ruth, don't you know how, how, how heartbreaking it is for me to be reminded of your first marriage all the time? Ruth, do you know how hard it is for me to live with your mom-in-law who blessed your first wedding? What does he do? He doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy your mother-in-law's land, but Malon's stuff, getting rid of it. What does he do? Buys it all. I'm going to take care of it. It doesn't bother me at all. I see your faces. This hits you. This really hits you. And this hits me, hits every one of us. Because why? This is an absolute selflessness that none of us have ever really heard of. You know, we live in a time and a culture where we date on the basis of Tinder swipes. And what's Tinder all about? Tinder is all about having what? Inexpensive, cheap relationships that might end overnight. And in Tinder, what do, you, what, what do you come to expect? You expect in your Tinder profiles what? You would pose in a way where you think, this is what I have to offer you, and your little profile would say, this is what I have to offer you, and you swap left on right as if they're cereal boxes. It's an entirely consumerist transactional practice where now relationships are reducible to buying goods and selling services. Nothing in there, nothing in there, It's all about a selfless romance of serving one another. But instead, in our generation, we now think of relationships as, here is what you have to offer me, what do you bring to the table, here's what I bring to the table, and here's how we're gonna do this. And if you stop delivering, I'm gonna stop being with you. And if I stop delivering, then go ahead. We can find other partners. Just keep swiping left or right. What? I almost cursed. That is satanic and demonic. It is. This is the absolute opposite of everything our culture has told us about relationships. The absolute, entirely opposite opposite of all of that. In this, we're seeing a completely different picture. What? No matter what, I'm gonna serve you. This relationship isn't about me. This relationship isn't about you either. Boaz is saying, if someone else can take better care of you, so be it, then that's better for you. Let this redeemer take you. Boaz is saying, this is not about what you've given to me. If, if I consider it transactional, then what do I have to gain? Ruth is a Moabite, Ruth is a widow. Ruth has a ton of baggage, and Ruth also brings with her a mother-in-law who is a widow. I have nothing to gain in this relationship, but I have everything to give and to serve. Friends, this is true romance. And it only works if both sides says the same thing. So only if both sides says, you first. This ain't about me. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, as Keller says. Can we do this in our romance? And what does Boaz say? He says, I will have Ruth, this is verse 10, I have Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from, the, from the, among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. What is he saying? I am taking Ruth for my wife and I'm taking this land. Why? Not primarily because of Ruth but because I care about the commandments of God, that we shall be fruitful and multiply, and I care about this family. If I can be a means for this family to continue their lineage, for this family to continue to be fruitful, for this family to continue to multiply so that they might bless other people and they might have children of their own, if this is what God wants, then Ruth, my commitment to her, my commitment to Naomi, my commitment to this land, It's not predicated upon the romance in itself, but something beyond it. Obedience to God. Obedience to God. So there's a reason beyond the romance. And this, by the way, this doesn't negate, right? This doesn't negate their lunch dates that they had in chapter two and three. This doesn't negate the intimate moments of proposing, right? This doesn't negate the romance in itself, the delights of romance, right? Just go ahead and read the Song of Songs. What you have here however, is saying that there is a romance, but a proper way to have that romance is to ground that romance in something beyond itself, knowing that this romance could point to a great God who serves His people, a great God who's committed to continuing and preserving this line of people. Not about you, not about me, not about what you put to the table, not about what I put to the table, but what God brings and how we can in this relationship Bring about and represent God to his people. Keeps going, friends. That's the first point. The total selflessness of Boaz. Second point. The total renewal of redemption. The totality of redemption as an absolute renewal. So, Boaz confesses all this. He confesses everything that he Uh, expects everything that he's about to do among these elders. This is a a ceremonious event. This is preparing for the wedding, that they do it among witnesses. And look at what the elders say. Look at what the elders say. This is verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate, this is a public event, and all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Let's pause there. Who were Rachel and Leah? Rachel and Leah were the first wives of Jacob. The very first wives, the first ladies of Israel, and Jacob was going to be renamed as Israel. Jacob was one of the very patriarchs of Israel himself, the originator of this nation. And the first ladies of Jacob were Rachel and Leah, God's chosen women. God's chosen woman that God would use to perpetuate his name to make this nation Israel and therefore God's beloved. Pure, with no Moabite background, but in fact God's beloved from the very beginning. What are the elders saying as they take on this Moabite woman into their family, this foreigner with this pagan past of God knows what, this this widow of the dead, with no hope or future and a past that is, what might some people think are def- is defiled. They bring her in, and what do the elders say? Well, better be careful. You know, we don't know what this lady will, might bring to the family. We don't know what she might be up to at night now, be careful. I don't know why I, I come up with this Southern accent. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I was watching uh, Kingsman and the Southern accent kind of kills me. <laughs> Um, no, that's not, that's not how they went about it, right? They, they don't, they didn't accept her with a kind of warning sign. They didn't. They accepted her not with a kind of reluctance. They accepted her not with a kind of restraint. They accepted her not with a kind of distrust or disgust. They accepted her fully, as if she was an Israelite to begin with, and not merely an Israelite to begin with, a normal woman of Israel, what? The first ladies themselves. Rachel and Leah. Talk about total renewal and total redemption. In other words, we're going to treat her like royalty. We're going to treat her as if she- of the family we're gonna treat Ruth as if she was never a Moabite never a foreigner never a widow we're gonna treat her as if she was the very first ladies of Israel herself now let that sink in for a moment talk about redemption and renewal cleansing you white as snow and only then do they say This is the second part of verse 11. May you act worthily in Eprefta and be renowned in Bethlehem. Let your actions follow this verdict. Let your actions, in other words, let our actions, O Ruth, follow the, the fact that you have already been accepted. We have already been accepted. Not so that you might earn the status or act now like Leah and Rachel so that we might deem you worthy as if you're on a probation period. No, act worthily now because you already are like Ray and Rachel. This renewal keeps going. We don't have time to cover verse 12. We're going to have to keep going to verse 13. And this is the marriage now. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. They consummated the wedding and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. In the Leah and Rachel part is renewal. Think about this fact. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. This little word, friends, became, is absolutely significant. Because this little word became is the same word in Genesis 2 verse 7. The, the, word, the word is actually a general word. It happens all the time in the Bible. It always signifies a transition of some kind. So sometimes it's used pretty generically, like there came about another day, or there came about in this day, or there came about another king. There's a transi- transitional word that could signify a transition in time or place or or distance. But this word specifically is also used in transitions of status, transitions of renewal, transitions of even creation. This little word is found twice in Genesis chapter two. It's first found in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, when God created Adam. God created Adam and what did God do? God breathed life into Adam. And when he breathed life into Adam, what does the text say? The man, Adam, became a breathing spirit. The man, Adam, became living flesh. The transition from deadness to life, God's breath of life, that's the same word, hayah. God made Adam and he became life, a breathing spirit. That's Genesis 2, verse 7. And then later on in Genesis 2, verse 27. And the Lord shall take the man and the woman. They shall leave the houses of their fathers and mothers. And they shall become one flesh. Wait a minute. Wasn't Ruth already married before? Wasn't she one flesh with someone else? How? Wait, okay. So she was one flesh with someone else. She married, right? You don't get any closer than that. And then now you're one flesh with Boaz? What is the text saying? Ruth is no longer, only. she's not only no longer defined by her Moabat family identity. She's no longer defined by who she is as a foreigner. She's not defined by who she is as an Israelite. But not only that, Her first marriage no longer defines her. Her second marriage does. In a real way, this second marriage defines Ruth and she can truly be one flesh with Boaz, even though she was married to someone else before. There is no stain. There is nothing there to cap this marriage as if it's a limited marriage because she was married before. There's nothing in the text that says that she can't give herself fully to Boaz or Boaz to her because she was with someone else before, no. There is an absolute renewal here and this marriage was as if the first time again. She became his husband, her husband, I mean, sorry, his husband. Let me take five to 10 minutes here and have a little quick aside, all right? I and Tazar talked about this pretty mightily on Friday. We, we got into like an hour-long discussion, I think, about it. And I think this is worth saying, and it's worth um, repeating, and it's worth emphasizing, because this is something so ingrained into us. And it is this. Texts like this, and by the way, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 encourages widows to remarry. He encourages widows to remarry. Without a warning sign, without anything, he just says, widows, you should remarry, Right? How can Paul say that? And how can this text be so unabashed about how Ruth and Boaz could, again, be one flesh? Well, there is this myth. And this, we might feel this is, this is counterintuitive. This is, this, is, this is so alien to us. Why? Because we've this myth. It's a myth that is perpetuated in the purity Bible Belt culture of America. It's a myth that is perpetuated in the Asian culture as well. And it's this. It's the myth that the sin... A sexual immorality or promiscuity is a different sin from other sins. It's a sin that taints you in a way that other sins don't. In other words, it is a myth that the sexual act outside of marriage or within marriage, if, if you have sex before marriage, that means you have tainted yourself or you've lost something, of a part of yourself, or you had a first marriage and they're approaching a second marriage, then you've also gone beyond repair. You're damaged now. You're tainted, you've lost so much of yourself. In other words, there's this myth that sexual immorality before marriage or sex after marriage, and therefore at an ending of the first marriage and the second marriage, is an act of losing yourself. So, and not being able to take back something you've given away forever to whoever that first wedding is or the first time you did it with. That's not biblical, as if the seventh commandment was any worse or any less serious than any other commandment, as if now, after you've become a Christian, you become second-rate. You know, it's interesting to me that that we talk about virginity, and we identify Christians who are no longer virgins as non-virgin Christians, as if there's this first-rate Christian. You might be a former liar. You might be a former slanderer. You might be a former murderer, but as long as didn't do that, you know, you're fine, you're redeemed now as a Christian, but you're tainted forever as a Christian, even if you become a Christian, if you've done this first thing. Boy, where is the redemption in that? Where is the redemption in that? There is a, uh, there is a good and, and, and powerful motivation for that. There is a good and powerful motivation in wanting to encouraging us to, to avoid immorality for marriage or encouraging us to, to avoid certain acts of sin. But it's an encouragement out of fear. It is an encouragement out of guilt. But realize that it's not something you lose. It's an act against God. Realize it is not something you've committed as as something that breaks you or or taints us forever. Instead, it it is an act that you've committed against the Lord. What is the text saying? God can and does renew you entirely and fully. It gives you a new identity in such a way where you are so renewed that just as the breaking of any other commandment doesn't bar you from the Lord, doesn't make you a second-class Christian, doesn't make you a second-class tainted person, but before God, you're wholly renewed, made clean, redeemed, pure, sanctified. You know, God doesn't call you a former narcissist, a former adulterer, a former murderer, a former liar. God doesn't identify you in that. He identifies you fully and completely in Christ Jesus, washed, pure, you have a renewed identity entirely as if nothing ever happened. As if nothing ever happened. You are a new creature now in Christ. May we now reflect that in our discourse. May we now talk about it in that. May we now not siphon off one sin as if it's a higher category of sin than any other sin. Let us now understand that there is nothing in you, no matter what your past is, that disallows you from having a renewed, full delighting in your new marriage in the Lord, your obedience unto God. Understand that there's nothing barring you from enjoying the pure delights of a marriage before a covenant Lord. Nothing in you that bars you from that. And understand this, friends. Understand this. Um, we need to be like Boaz let's go straight to our third point because if I keep camping on this I'm not going to be able to stop let's keep keep going to Boaz how to be selfless in romance the meaning of marriage how to be selfless in romance the meaning of marriage be like Boaz how do we we be so selfless and see and redeem each other's pasts and see and redeem each other's romances in such a way where we're completely self-forgetful where we're completely for the other person and serving the other person and giving ourselves entirely to the other person and, and take away this land and be forgiving, like Boaz. How can we ever be like that in our romances? Why? How? Friends, it is this. We could only be like Boaz if we realize that we're not Boaz in this story. We can only be like Boaz if we realize we're not Boaz in this story. I'm afraid when I talked about that myth, when I talk about that myth of, 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 of losing yourself in the act outside of marriage or within your first marriage, when I talk about that myth, maybe you're relating with someone, or, or maybe you yourself have that kind of past, right? If you're relating with someone in that kind of past, you might think, well, I have to be like Boaz. You know, I, I, I'm marrying this Ruth figure, right? That's self-righteous. Boaz, the only reason why Boaz could be like this with Ruth is because, why? He believes in a covenant faithful Lord. Who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? Naomi doesn't think, thank Boaz. I look at verse 14. Naomi and the others said to, uh, and Ruth and, uh, and all the women said to Naomi, blessed be what? The Lord. They don't thank Boaz and himself, they thank the Lord for this redemption. The only reason Boaz can be the man that he is is because Boaz understands that He is who He is because of the Lord of Israel. Who is the Lord of Israel? The Lord who chose this nation out of Egypt, not because, Deuteronomy 9 says, they were better, not because they were mightier, not because they were holier, not because they were better than the Moabites or the Egyptians. There is a Lord, a covenant faithful redeemer God who redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land. And that is how Boaz can be who he is. Friends, if we now have an inclination to think we are Boaz in the story, boy did we get the story wrong. We're not. We're not. All of our sins have barred us from that. We are the Moabites. You and I are the Moabites. We are the foreigners. We are those who are dirty in Christ, outside of Christ. We are those who've been barred out from God's covenant. We are those who are desperate, widows without Him. Friends, we are the ones desperate for a bridegroom. We are the ones without hope. We are the ones uh, with the family of the world. We are the ones who are in Adam. We are the ones, in other words, that without Jesus Christ have no place to go. We are the ones who have sinned against him. The only way you could be like Boaz to someone else is if you realize that there's someone greater than Boaz. Turn your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 19. There's a greater wedding that we await. And what is this wedding? Then I heard in verse 6, this is verse 6 to 8 we're going to read. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. There's a different crowd of witnesses here. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. Friends, there's a greater wedding. And in this wedding, we are the ones unprepared, but we are the ones made ready the way Ruth was made ready. And in this wedding, we were the ones defiled and unclean, but in Christ Jesus, we are made clean. In this wedding, we are the ones with fine linen, bright and pure, considered way more than Rachel and Leah, way more than Judah or Tamar. In this wedding, friends, we are clothed, not merely with the perfection of the first woman of Israel, but the perfection of the son himself. In this wedding, we're not merely redeemed from a physical land, or a physical family, we're redeemed from ourselves, the flesh, and Satan. In this wedding, friends, you will be made righteous, and before the throne of God above, you're clean, spotless, without wrinkle, as if you've never done anything for yourself. You have a renewed nature. Before the God, spotless, ready for the lamb, the one who's paid all of your debt in the full. Go now, this is your new identity. Be ready for this marriage. We are all one and clean in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lift this out now.
2: As we enter into a time of communion and that sermon just uh, in the text reminded me of a sermon I heard in the U.S. about um, as preacher, Matt Chandler, a Reformed Baptist guy. He, uh, he heard a sermon, and he was sitting down, and somebody else was preaching, and this preacher took a flower, and he said, it, he was trying to explain what uh, premarital sexual sin can cause. And he, he, he gave the flower to one person. This is like a 500-person church. He gave the flower to the first person in the front row. And he said, it's a beautiful flower, isn't it? It started off beautiful and pure. Now, every person just, like, touched a bit of the sides, you know, and kind of enjoyed its beauty, touched it a little bit here and there, and passed it all the way back. And, of course, at the end of the row, the flower that was once beautiful was all messed up and broken. And the, and the preacher said, who wants anybody that's like this? This is what... This is what that sin does to you. Matt Chandler got so mad. (laughs) The next time he preached, he stood up and he said, you know who wants that flower? God does. Do not ever tell somebody that their sin in any way makes them beyond the grasp of the love of the sovereign God. Total renewal in Christ. God wants it. He died for it. He died for you.